everyone. Welcome to Grub Science, the only podcast about beetle larvae and whippets, but definitely not the only one about punching Nazis. For this episode, we thought it would be fun to describe some views of fascism, uh, you know, across academia. Yes, fun. And, yeah, right, right. Fun is loosely used here, uh, much as fascism often is too. Uh, then we were going to discuss kind of the actually existing uh, fascist political economies of all the big hits in fascist history. So uh, we at Native Science decided to bring along anti-anti-anti-holocaust expert Sean McCarthy and the rest of the Grubstakers gang. Uh, well, hello, yes, thank you for having us. Sean here. Uh-huh. One of the others here. This is one of the others as well. <laughs> oh, man. The two yes, testicles to, to Sean's anti-anti-photo. <laughs> I do, I do want to make the clarification that you were talking about actually existing fascism, and true fascism has never been tried. And I think if it had, <laughs> it would work. So I also, I also want to say that Sean <clears throat> likes to bill himself as the big Holocaust expert, but I definitely have a better Hitler impression than Sean. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> And I also can't wait for the verdict on whether we should, uh, should or shouldn't defend the precious remaining Coke brother now that his market value is uh, increased through scarcity. <laughs> There's actually so, two others. I mean, sorry, but one of them's a billionaire as well, yeah. but like a light billionaire. I thought right. one I of mean, the others was dead too. No, maybe you're right. Because yeah. there were four altogether. Yeah. Right. I mean, there I mean, is well, those other guys should have been more productive, I guess. <laughs> There's only two left. Yeah. Working with not less every, of a bootstrap. Not everyone's a Marsha in the family, Andy. Okay, some people have to be Peter. <laughs> so ideologically, fascism is kind of this umbrella of views and movements um, that are characterized by like violent nationalism, uh, kind of superficial populism. They're obviously extremely hierarchical. Um, I must have been living under a rock. You knew that, um, and they're just contemptuous of life, personal freedoms, and um, the kinds of rights that like the average person enjoys um, or hopes to enjoy anyway. Uh, fascism espouses a lot of vague ideals or values, kind of like liberalism, uh, but such as de- decisiveness, vitality, strength, purity, stuff like that. Uh, they always have these honor and loyalty. Like, yeah. Loyalty, lost glory. Um, it's kind of a death cult. Uh, again, for those of you who don't read, uh, the vagueness of their ideas and the incoherence. Fucking idiots. <laughs> All the idiots that listen to our podcasts collectively. Um, yeah, Pick the, up the a Venn book, diagram. you cretins. <laughs> Fucking squealing little piggies. <laughs> Put them all in. Now, this, this, this might be a bit of a reach for you listeners of a leftist podcast, but today we're going to make the argument that fascism is bad. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> oh, yeah, the honor and loyalty parts, those are good. And yeah, he just walked out. Yeah. I, I thought this was going to be uh, uh, a podcast. <laughs> what if we told you there was a third position? <laughs> I, it's, it's a term that I thought I knew, and then it turns out it means posting ironically online. <laughs> I'm actually above all you guys because I think all three sides are wrong. You're just all stupid. Oh, yeah, shit. we know that. I'll That's never the only thing we can't confirm. One. We're all idiots. <laughs> Fucking crab syndrome or whatever they call that. Um, all right. So so what's interesting is that uh, when you when you kind of read into like the analyses, like the academic analyses of, of fascism, um, you see this kind of interesting split that, that often gets called out uh, where the um, th- there's these essays that they'll be like, oh, everyone treats fascism 
there's this big mysterious thing. It's, you know, I've saw like literally a quote that's like, this is the most bewildering of political movements. Um, and they kind of have this centristy, liberally sort of take on it where they're like, well, all the Marxist analysts agree that fascism is capitalism in crisis, protecting itself, you know, using brute force through the state um, to do so and to kind of increase its gains as usual. Uh, but all these non-Marxist scholars, you know, they just can't seem to figure out what it is exactly. So obviously there's just no way to know. <laughs> they just must not know that many movements because Posadism is the most bewildering movement. <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah, not yeah. even a contest. Yeah, it's more of a fan club for like, yeah. <laughs> sort of like R.L. Stein's best political theory or something. Um, <laughs> Hitler may have believed in like ancient witches or whatever, but he didn't believe in like you, uh, intelligent dolphins and UFOs and, you know, nuking everyone. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, I was on board with the nuking everyone, but you're telling me that Posadism also has UFOs and smart dolphins? Right. <laughs> I think Occam's razor uh, requires us to believe that the dolphins are the ones in the UFOs nuking us. Um, but <laughs> is, it, is this just the... Uh, oh, shit, what was the book? Never mind. I hope you guys cut. <laughs> I just feel like <laughs> smart dolphins are always like... Uh, dolphins are smart, and this is why we're trying to fuck them. <laughs> this is why not cut, but when someone makes a mistake, I amplify it. <laughs> okay, so you're like grub stakers. Okay. This is going to be a podcast where the grub stakers are are exposed. <laughs> Just how bad our podcast would be if we didn't edit half of it out every week. <laughs> Perfect. All right. So, so again, the Marxist uh, or sort of leftist analysis is basically capitalism crisis. It tries to protect itself, and it uses a kind of superficially populist. Uh, movement to uh, sort of seize the sort of milquetoast liberal democratic uh, order uh, and bureaucracy to then just basically consolidate and fuse the corporate interests with uh, the state interests in the name of the, the alleged nation. Um, and another way of summarizing it. Fascism is when you uncuck capitalism. Right. As you put it earlier, Ryan, when we were chatting, um, fascism is, is kind of like capitalist realpolitik. Um, yeah. And, uh, to quote, uh, one of the essays, which again, this was one of these weird centrist essays where they're like, we have no idea, but the Marxists say, and you're like, well, the Marxist line that you literally just paraphrased was actually pretty good. Um, fascism is the dictatorship of monopoly capital drawn by its internal contradictions into policies of oppression at home and expansion abroad. Uh, Meanwhile, I think two of the most powerful or, or kind of legible academic attempts outside of the standard Marxist analysis uh, that exist that don't really touch on class or capital per se are, first, there's Roger Griffin, um, who says that fascism really appealed because, at least at this sort of populist sort of voter mass movement level, because it offered to restore a quote-unquote sense of belonging and rejuvenating the life of the spirit, therefore bringing about the moral rebirth of society. So basically you know, uh, super reactionary conservatism, you know, um, a lot of uh, sort of religious undertones here. That sounds like how a fascist would describe fascism. <laughs> yeah, I have, I have some questions about Griffin. Uh, he's, he's a fascism expert. And uh, as, I, as I put it to somebody else I was talking to about, you know, ahead of this episode, um, who, who is not a fascism expert, by the way. Um, but uh, I was like, you know, it's interesting how, like, there's so many Marxists in the study of Marxism, you know, um, and I kind of wonder about all the people who are in the study of fascism. Um, 
<laughs> so Griffin developed this interesting idea uh, in the kind of, I guess, the meta theory or, or the sort of the theory, the philosophy of, of fascism. Um, and the term is palingenesis, which is uh, fascism's bid to inaugurate a national, uh, national or ethnic rebirth, though, is this kind of key in their mythology. And they aim to bring about a quote unquote revolution in the ethos and culture of society that would impact every sphere of social life. So it's a totalitarian uh, mythology uh, based around a kind of like a state rebirth of sorts. Um, and he talks about kind of fascism as a reaction against the secularizing and disenchanting impact of modernity. So, so I think basically, again, people who don't like to read uh, and refuse to acknowledge things like, uh, you know, like that women are people. Um, well, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. And I, I'm, of course, not the first one to make this observation. I mean, you know, we talk about Marx and alienation yeah. under capitalism. So we see fascism emerge in the 20th century as clearly one response to this alienation. Yeah. And part of it is an appeal to a pre-capitalist time, you know, like uh, Mussolini appealed to the Roman right. times and uh, just like a, a mythical past that never necessarily existed. But that, you know, if people are living and suffering under, say, industrial capitalism they might have some nostalgia for you know their their settler ancestors or their farmer ancestors or whatever the case may be hitler appealed to the time when the world was roamed by wagnerian thick goddesses (laughs) (laughs) winged helmets and giant metal bras some of the nazi occult shit was so funny where like uh essentially the the nazis believed or some of them like himmler believed that because they were you know the master race they they couldn't accept that the runes they would find mm-hmm. of ancient Germanic peoples were, you know, kind of like barbarians, essentially. They thought that the ancient Germans were far mm-hmm. more advanced than the Romans. So they, <laughs> so some of them became convinced, and I believe Himmler bought into this as well, that the Germans were from the lost city of Atlantis, which was submerged <laughs> underwater. And there yeah, was like, I about this, yeah. I'm spacing on his name right now, but <laughs> Himmler spent a bunch of money uh, of SS money to this like schizophrenic guy who was committed to an inst- institution um, because he tried to kill his wife. Uh, but he was like an occult guy who like spoke in Shit. tongues and believed he was descended from these Aryan gods who had like some Aryan god battle and near the city of Atlantis. And basically Himmler gave him a bunch of money to go around the uh-huh. German forests and countrysides and search for evidence of the lost city of Atlantis. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but what is his thetan count? I mean, how many thetans did he have inside him? Yeah, Chris and I were talking before this, and I was through I was the saying roof. That, um, I was, today I've been thinking about how uh, fascists appeal to tradition, and obviously most of it is just like made up bullshit because they they invent their own narrative of history. Right. And I think the the purpose of that is for them to kind of circumvent the normal rituals that we go through in our society so like for property they want to portray uh you know the current owners of property mostly the you know the lower class ones as like illegitimate owners and the the laws that apply that would normally apply to them as illegitimate because they've been victimized in this like historical way and so they're trying to get around both the ritual of uh, like transferring ownership from one person to another and trans and um, sorry, following like the process of 
um, like the judicial system, like finding someone guilty so that you can legitimately use state force against them. Mm. Um, did you guys want to hear right. what this guy actually believed? Uh, this Carl Willigut yes. guy? Okay, so <laughs> yes, I, I looked it up because I, I put I it in the you. notes for another episode <laughs> and I never used it. So this guy was called Carl Willigut. And um, so he just from, this is, I'm just quoting from Wikipedia. <laughs> According to Willigut, Germanic culture and history reached back to 228,000 BC. He proposed that at this time there were three suns and the earth was inhabited by giants, dwarves, and other mythical creatures. Willigut claimed that his ancestors, the Adler Willigoten, it ended a long period of war. By 12,500 BC, the Erminic religion of Christ was revealed and from that time became the religion of all Germanic. Germanic peoples until the schematic <laughs> adherence of Wotanism gained the upper hand. Um, there's like a bunch of wars between the Wotanists and the Hermetics. <laughs> this makes the QAnon people sound like a bunch of normies. <laughs> yeah. It's, I like how the, yeah, the right. mythical creatures he names are uh, just gen- genetic deformities that already exist in the regular population in David Lynch movies. Just giants and dwarves. Right, 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 right. And Willigut right. claimed his own ancestors were supposedly protagonists in this setting. The Willigottis were the, quote, ice kings. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, so that's... So Willigut is the direct right, right. answer. the Lannisters. But yeah, yeah, have you ever heard of Odin? Yeah, my dad kicked his yeah. ass, bro. <laughs> and so like if memory serves Himmler was paying this guy and he made him like a colonel in the SS until like I think 1938 someone else in the SS found that he'd been committed to a psychiatric institution for trying to kill his wife so Himmler had to like uh, let him retire give him a retirement with honors basically <laughs> they, they frowned on that Fortunately, mm-hmm. we don't have mental institutions now, so that won't happen to the current fascist movements. They'll just fuck each other's wives instead. <laughs> yeah. We have to accept this. This is what happens. <laughs> yeah, there's there's still some adherence of this yeah. religious movement, by the way. <laughs> I guess it's like kind of German paganist occultism. Well, it was funny because towards the end of the war, this was actually mentioned, we were talking about the family in one of our episodes. Um, there were some Nazis who were... Um, yeah, hardcore Christians, and they towards the end of the war they started getting really outspoken against Hitler because they were mad that they weren't mad about say killing the Jews or um, destroying uh, that. <laughs> yeah <laughs> de- destroying everyone in a war <laughs> but they did say like oh this paganism is unacceptable <laughs> and then some of them got jailed and then after the war they used that essentially to completely rebuild their post-war career as a, yeah. a nazi opponent listen murder i can stand but halloween shut it down <laughs> <laughs> have you heard that the guards in treblinka are praying to mary <laughs> this is just pure heathen, heathen behavior <laughs> Sure, the trains are on time, but they go by the lunar oh, calendar. God. <laughs> <laughs> can't tell the time at night. Uh, or is it during the day? I can't remember. Um, so, yeah. So, uh, and then, uh, so another major uh, scholar of fascism, uh, as you might put it, um, 
wrote in The Anatomy of Fascism, uh, fascism may be defined as a form of political behavior marked by obsessive preoccupation with community of decline, humiliation, or victimhood. So touching a lot on what you mm. mentioned, uh, uh, Ryan. And by compensatory cults of unity, energy, and purity in which a mass-based party of committed nationalist militants working in uneasy but effective collaboration with traditional elites abandons democratic liberties and pursues with redemptive violence and without e ethical or legal restraints, goals of internal cleansing and external expansion. Which is an interesting, I, I feel like that last bit is interesting because it's like, it's kind of like they say like, oh, you know, you kept calling me a Nazi, so I, I just had <laughs> to become a Nazi. And I think that, that process is like, well, you were always kind of a shithead. You just decided to like get a flag. Uh, <laughs> And then also the fact that they collaborated with the state and, you know, uh, maintained some form of the state, you know, quite aggressively. I, fe I feel like that goes quite, you know, flies in the face of what he said, you know, without legal restraints. I'm like, you know, I don't know if legal was restraining him at all. Well, it's interesting just like, <clears throat> I mean, how essentially you find a popular movement willing to support their continued exploitation and oppression. Right. So there's like, I mean, I think fascism is probably just... Uh, the only real way on the, uh, let's say, capitalist side to square that circle, which is you at least make rhetorical con concessions to populism, um, but but ultimately it's the the reason that the business community in, in um, you know Germany and Italy came around to it was they recognized that the alternative was the, if not end of private property, severe restriction of it. Sure. Yeah. Exactly. And that's and that's. Um, because you're a dirty communist that you would say that, uh, but, <laughs> but, um, I, it's, it's really interesting because fascism is to kind of like statist totalitarian politics or whatever. Um, just as any like branding campaign is to a standard corporation. It's just like, if you drink Coke, you'll be happy. You know, if you, if you yeah. all follow my brand, you'll, you'll have a satisfying life and you'll get the, the partner of your dreams, you know, or whatever the fuck. And it's pretty much exactly the same kind of just like existential fulfillment, you know, don't look behind the curtain kind of message. Um, but from like a, an authoritarian statist uh, uh, angle um, in order to, like you said, you know, to kind of bring square that circle. Right. Um, yeah. One out of 10 ethnic groups recommends fascism. <laughs> 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 and they're all phrenologists. Uh, now you're saying Coke's going to solve all my problems, though? Is that C-O-K-E? I need to get that out. <laughs> yeah. How, how exactly do you drink Coke? Mm, I think butt like chugging is the way to do it. I share it with a fellow brown shirt. <laughs> the, the Nazis invented Fanta, right? I think that's Is that right. in my head no, for Coke, some reason? Coke invented Fanta for the Nazis using leftover uh, materials that they had in Germany. Did you just say leftover materials? Could you clarify yeah, that? Yeah, the reason it was orange flavored is because they had a bunch of like orange peel laying around, so they made a soda oh, out of okay, orange peel. Okay. Okay. Oh, really? I was afraid you were going to say like. Uh, I don't know how. Like, why would Germany have oranges? But yeah. apparently, that's that's the story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Keep keep scurvy out of the troops. Yeah, it's it's important to put a Fanta on the pro con when you're weighing out the Holocaust. <laughs> <laughs> At least yeah. minimum. On one hand, you've got, you know, untold atrocities um, on just a vast industrialized scale. On the other hand, you have that catchy earworm, don't you want to, <laughs> don't you want to thonta. So, so 
now that we've kind of covered uh, in obviously great depth and detail, you know, all of the possible views of fascism um, to to exhaustion, uh, leaving nothing left to be discussed or described. Uh, let's let's move on to the kind of historical cases, the big hits, and I'll kick off with Italy, and I'll try my best to summarize because I got a ton of notes here, and I realized I basically wrote like half a novel on this thing. Um, Could you do it in a Mario accent? <laughs> <laughs> in Italy, Mussolini's little project start in 1914. <laughs> yeah, this is a uh, Grubstakers combined episode, so you're going to have to do it being interrupted by a sound effect every 15 <laughs> seconds. I was, I was waiting for the, 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 you know, yada, 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 and like whatever the fuck else you're going to do, but... Do you have the Mario coin sound on your soundboard? Oh, shit. That would be extremely <laughs> relevant, know. too. Um, every time I describe beating a socialist to death in front of his wife, you just go, cling, cling. <laughs> That's just the sound that naturally happens. Yeah, right, the sound of, right. the sound of when Mussolini is defeated. <laughs> <laughs> That's the sound he made when they hung him up from that light pole. <laughs> That's right. Oh, <laughs> Bowser. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the communists uh, hit a button and they opened up the bridge and dropped him into lava. So, so Mussolini was an interesting case because this old bastard um, used to be part of the Italian Socialist Party, uh, but when World War One kind of kicked in and fucked up uh, a lot of the sort of socialist movement and organization and kind of a lot of their cohesion across Europe. Uh, Mussolini started to get really, really into this kind of uh, pro, uh, pro-Italian pro interventions, uh, very into like Italian militarism as kind of a, a, a path to national modernization and shit. And this is, of course, coming on the, the coattails of Italian unification. So he was uh, like a little, he's just getting a little too heated about that part. And who knows um, really like what was in his heart as a socialist properly when he was still part of the party. Um, but he seemed to just get increasingly anti-soy boy and increasingly pro like, you know, machine guns and, and uniforms. And so in, in 1914, uh, the socialist party, I probably describe him as like a grunge rock anarchist. <laughs> <laughs> when he was a socialist or after. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, having the, the same kind of ideological commitment as someone who goes to grunge shows and wears an anarchy yeah, t-shirt. Yeah, no, that makes sense, like, based on what was going on. And he was definitely, like, he was definitely a zines guy. Like, he was, like, big into, like, just shouting about socialism. And then once the Socialist Party kicked him out late in 1914, I think in, like, I think in, like, the fall of 1914 because of all his, like, nationalist shit, uh, he basically just very quickly very very quickly within like a month he went straight to uh an armaments manufacturer called Ansaldo and was like hey do you want to pay me to be a nationalist newspaper guy and they're like uh, well yeah like we're an, <laughs> we're an armaments manufacturer of course so he basically just got them to pay him to do pro-war propaganda you know nationalist propaganda and just got paid and so by doing this deal he he uh, was able to um, do a little sort of Kickstarter for um, his first fascist newspaper, which was uh, Il Popolo d'Italia, which obviously in English translates to um, the Supreme Pizza. As bup, a, bup, bup, bup. Uh, as However, that song goes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And so that was the first instance of uh, pizza supremacy in the media, obviously. Um, Honestly, dude, we're lucky that fascists haven't offered free pizza yet. <laughs> they would win in- instantly. Yeah, unfortunately, they do have a I mean, Domino's will it. do it. Um, I, was, I was really interested to find out that he, uh, the Supreme Pizza, ran issues every day except Mondays, which I'm sure has a Garfield tie. And, um, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I did not discover exactly what that tie-in was. Uh, That's why he hates it. He doesn't have a job, and he can't read his his blood and soil <laughs> literature. Right, and he can't hang it with Hitler because Hitler hasn't been invented yet. Blood, soil, and lasagna. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. Um, so just a month after founding the newspaper, so like these, he's moving very quickly at this point. Um, in December 1914, uh, Mussolini comes out right out and just like is like, orthodox socialism is... is fucked because um uh national identity and and nationalism and like state cohesion is uh is now like the cause du du jour or whatever it's bigger than class uh warfare we need to uh, ignore class or at least subjugate it to uh national interest which of course is a you know sort of a third way if you will um and he socialism is gay dude you're literally sharing wealth with another man (laughs) right (laughs) <laughs> you're touching bank accounts. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so he, he found his stride at that point uh, as just like a total chode. He kicked off the revolutionary fascist party one month after that. So what, like three months after leaving or getting booted from the socialist party, he founded a boot party called the revolutionary fascist party. Um, and then several years later, after kind of, you know, developing momentum and then doing poorly in some elections, they rebranded in 1921 as the National Fascist Party, just doing the nationalist thing right out there. They they kicked him out of the Socialist Party when he found it. They found out he posted on the stupid poll Reddit. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> he used an ableist slur on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> you know, saying we've been reading through some of the carrier pigeon men- messages <laughs> you sent during the war. <laughs> can you can you explain this? It says Hitler will have done nothing wrong. <laughs> um so i found a paper that was interesting from a guy at university of warwick who essentially gave us three basic historical phases of fascist development in italy he also did germany but we'll leave germany for you guys to kind of um, fret about but um so i'll I'll just blitz through this um but again you can interrupt if you want Uh, so phase one was quote unquote radical ideas and reformist leadership um, early fascism was very anti-big capitalist, violently anti-Bolshevik in message, um, it, but it was strongly for reclaiming and unifying lost national uh, territories. So yeah, uh, irredentism, um, this whole idea of like national unification, which was still this huge thing on Italian minds. Um, and uh, if you kind of are the sort of person who who believes that everything's on like a left-right spectrum, regardless of your orientation along that spectrum. There's, oh, the party has a left wing and a right wing, uh, which is just confusing and weird, but like located on the left of the fascist spectrum in this, you know, way of saying things. Um, many of the people that were, were part of early Italian fascism came from kind of authoritarian leftism, so to speak, as well as like, quote unquote, anti-capitalist rightist splinter groups. Um, I read that uh, fasci, uh, which uh, you know eventually becomes the term fascism, 
Um, but fasci for a little while was just kind of a term for these political splinter groups throughout Italy uh, because of the Roman tradition and, and this idea of the, of the, of the, uh, it occurs to me, you know, like, so Mussolini mm -hmm. was a socialist with a socialist newspaper who became a fascist. So, of course, the modern equivalent of this is going to be a socialist podcaster. And now you just have me thinking about which podcaster is going to become the Mussolini of our movement. <laughs> uh, so then so then they got into this ultranationalism. Um, in 1919, the Italian fascists were saying... We want a heavy capital levy, a tax on war profits, which is an interesting move for people who are extremely pro-war, apparently. Um, generous. Yeah, Hitler would. Well, sorry. I was yeah. just going to say Hitler would always talk about like hang the war profiteers or, you know, we're going to destroy right. the war profiteers right. and all that. So it's I mean, it's just a way of I mean, Get of course, people. it's like militant, but uh -huh. it, it, it does rhetorically attack capitalism and it, just on the surface level. Right, right. And so this is... There's that also, and there's also the anti-individualist element where fascism yeah. meant like uh, um, uh, fastening together of sticks, or like a bundle of yes, sticks, exactly. because you can't, um, you know, one stick you can break easily, but right. a group of sticks are much harder. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and uh, so when you're, you know, when you're designing your political economy with a crayon... Uh, it's actually best to uh, just hold the whole <laughs> box and scribble it all over the map um, until something happens. Uh, but yeah, basically, uh, the early kind of writers within Italian fascism spoke of a post-capitalist economic system. And again, yeah, we're, we're just, you know, this is the rhetoric they use to kind of draw people in um, uh, before they sort of sandbag the people who wouldn't just fall in line. Um, but uh, spoke of a post-capitalist economic system with quote-unquote, collective ownership of a corporative economy. And, of course, that, that right there should give it away, but I think a lot of people don't really think that far. Um, well, I know, actually, um, I, I haven't read much of them, but the, one of the most influential fascist writers, like, of the new right today is Julius Evola, oh, yeah. who was, you know, Italian fascist who initially supported Mussolini. I don't know if he turned away from him later. But he, he wrote this book, Ride the Tiger, yeah. which was essentially like the 4chan types love it because yeah. the idea is you are, say, like a traditional fascist or whatever you are in a modern degenerate society. It's like you're riding a tiger. Mm -hmm. So you have to like maintain traditional values and, you know, live within and do your best to bring fascism to fruition and such. It's like life of pie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You gotta, yeah. You gotta fascism is based on a, a second-rate Aquabats song. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> fascism is all about eating your own shit while you're on a boat with a tiger. Oh yeah, so it's like human centipede mixed with life of pie. I get it. Uh, hey, yeah. hey. That's the cooperative part. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so um, phase two was when they started to kind of show their hand, but it started to be too late because you know in the early 20s they they took the state over. Um, and so phase two is called practical accommodations, syndical states, which is, uh, eh, I think it's a misnomer. And then proto autarky, which is definitely classically a fascist concern. Um, but it's very interesting how autarky is, uh, resonant with a lot of this sort of, uh, you know, classical liberalism and neoclassical economics. Uh, when you talk about like competitive advantages and all this bullshit and self-sufficiency, you know, in the value system, um, so they let the industrialists basically retain private property. Big fucking surprise. 
Uh, but they said, but, you know, you got to meet these national needs and quotas. And we, you know, we, we got to really struggle and used all this rhetoric uh, to, to talk about how, oh, you know, but the, but the industrialists, they're on the hook, too. So we're all in this together. We're all one big happy family, as American corporate types might say. Um, and they used the impact of the Great Depression, which, of course, was just like hollowing everybody out, at least the, the, all the workers and, and average people out at the time to kind of justify their weird moves. Uh, but one one uh, article I read, I forget which one, but they said that in the early 20s when they were just getting going at the head of the state, the fascist economic policy was basically classical liberal um, and used some kind of uh, Keynesian maneuvering. Um, again, very in line with our view and, and kind of how we're thinking about this from the sort of material analysis. Um, corporativism or corporatismo, corporatismo, was Mussolini's answer to curbing and developing capitalism, you know, which we love to do when we're anti-capitalists, um, but not abolishing it. So uh, they said, oh, well, we're, we're different from just liberal capitalism and classical liberalism. We're, we're fascists. We're doing this for the nation. And so they, uh, <laughs> they claim to uh, eliminate the opposed interests of capital and labor by basically forcing everyone to organize in such a way that um, they integrated the workers and the capitalists into these kind of corporativist uh, organizations and sectors so that they were, it's like, I feel like the, the metaphor I want to use here is kind of like a lock-in where you're like, oh, no, no, again, we're all in this together. We're all a state and a nation now. Um, so you all have to go to work. Um, and again, you know, the industrialists, they're on the hook too. Like, they're, they're the ones who are also suffering with you, so you should just let this happen. Um, but they also would just use kind of executive order and decree to the extent that um, public contracts like escalated uh, massively. And um, by 1944, it says 71% of banking assets were held in government securities versus 20% in 1933. So in 11 years, it jumps like you know 51%, uh, which is... Uh, quite a bit. Uh, this corporatismo uh, approach um, basically brutally dismantled independent trade unions. Of course, uh, fascists classically love to beat up unionists. Um, and they uh, incorporated workers within corporations, which were then controlled, as I understand it, by fascist sort of peak organizations. Um, so essentially it's just, it's well, just, in fairness, mm-hmm. uh, I was just going to say in fairness, they were Italian, so they were just beating people up and they were told afterwards they were unionists. Post hoc. Did you call me Fredo? They were beating up trade unionists just because they insulted their mom's pasta recipe. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so they, uh, they introduced and, uh, maintained a mixture of high tariffs. Sounds familiar barter and bilateral trade agreements, which is just straight up fucking, you know, state capitalism, um, strict exchange controls also, you know, and draconian import licenses. So again, pretty much what you would expect from, uh, from this kind of, uh, pro-capitalist government with a, with a strong hand in things. Agricultural landowners got a lot, uh, from these public contracts and, Private property and industry was, by and large, the Norman fascist Italy and the Third Reich. Which we'll get to. Um, but basically, yeah, private property won even more than they usually do because they had, you know, it's just they were in bed with the state at that point, and the state was just like backing them up. 
Um, so phase three is this whole idea of autarkic economy where uh, late 20s through, I guess, the rest of their, of their era, Mussolini had created centralized state controls over banking and foreign exchange. Um, and he, he had this thing called the Four Battles, uh, which was just heavily propagandized. Um, you know, these totalitarian states, they're always doing That was thing, like right? sparrows and that, that kind of thing, right? <laughs> Sorry, what? That's that's when they killed all the sparrows. Oh yeah, the sparrows. Yeah, right, right. The, the famous Italian war against sparrows. This was their can- their campaign against train delays. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we gotta start at the next level. Go through the pipe a little faster next time. <laughs> Here in New York, we we elected an Italian to fix our trains because we thought he was going to bring the spirit of Mussolini, but <laughs> it turns out it's not that simple. <laughs> No, Mussolini fixed public transit by handing out raccoon hats everyone could fly with. (laughs) (laughs) Surprisingly, they didn't use it to, you know, escape Italy. (laughs) It's interesting because the Francoist government was much more sonic oriented. (laughs) Yeah, that is really interesting. Um, so, So there was a lot of protectionism and, again, government contracts were big. Uh... These these four battles were the battle for land, the battle for the lira, which is the currency, the battle for grain, and the battle for births, of all things, um, the succession mm-hmm. with uh, population that is typical. Wow, I've never heard that before. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, it's it's good to have uh, soldiers. <laughs> exactly. Soldiers and laborers, right? And especially when you're, you know, when you're probably pretty, pretty okay with child labor. It doesn't, you know, you don't actually have to uh, have these, have these uh, soldiers and laborers live for all that long, you just got to use them for a few years before they uh, naturally expire. So they, they, they went through some weird moves. Um, you guys can, you know, listeners, you can look into the four battles. It's, it's just this propaganda shit. It was, uh, but it was this whole idea that they were modernizing, but uh, again, the propaganda expanded uh, on, on what they did far more than what they actually did. Uh, so for example, in the battle for land, which is like, you know, draining swamps, literally, um, and uh, reclaiming lands. That's where the Goombas come in. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Just a bunch of Italian peasants running around jumping on wildlife. <laughs> Re- reclaiming glands so they were anti-circumcision. <laughs> for, for Mussolini, for Mussolini, the four battles were the battle against gonorrhea, the battle against chlamydia, the battle against HPV. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the guy was like, I mean, it's not really related to the political system, but he was a fucking serial rapist yeah. who uh, the battle against commitment. Yeah. Oh, uh, Mussolini is canceled. <laughs> <laughs> Man, All of our faves are implicated in the Epstein scandal. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like even even before he took power, he'd been accused of rape multiple times, and then after he took power, he was like uh, sleeping with the four. Like up to four people a day, some of which were just straight up children. Ugh. You know. I mean, hold on though. Would you be surprised if Alessandra Mussolini was implicated in the Epstein thing? <laughs> would not be. Would not I would not. Be <laughs> yeah, yeah. In this no, house, somebody's got to make the pizza. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so I'm going to skip the details, but basically, um, Mussolini also. Uh, pegged a lira to the British pound sterling uh, in 1927 
which resulted in a shit the most economy. anti-nationalist thing you can do for your economy <laughs> yeah. is peg it to a foreign e- currency. Economic nationalism <laughs> fail. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so what that resulted in, uh, directly or indirectly, was a ton of uh, mergers within the Italian economy, uh, which, as Ryan and I like to harp on, is a fairly typical thing in um, you know capitalist uh, power building. Um, and the industrial consolidation led to the point uh, that led to a point at which in 1932, 0.88%, so less than 1% of corporations controlled almost 52% of all corporate capital in Italy. Well, thank, thank God there's no modern analogy for that kind <laughs> right, of situation. Right. I've never seen that like that before. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in other... Well, it is... It- yeah. I was just going to say it is interesting. I mean, kind of skipping ahead where I think the best uh, explanatory model for the modern U.S. government and economy and stuff is inverted totalitarianism Mm. because you're talking about, you know, this concentration of corporate power in Italy and you saw the same thing in Germany where they very much prefer to deal with monopolies or cartels because, you know, then the state and these cartels are kind of almost fused together. Mm. And you do see something very similar to that in the United States where essentially the two big-to-fail banks are U.S. law is not applicable to them. You know, they can just fucking traffic cocaine or do 10 million illegal foreclosures. It doesn't fucking matter. Nothing they do can result in actual punishment. And, you know, you also see that with, say, the big three pharmaceutical distributors, uh, you know, uh, creating a heroin epidemic and killing a quarter of a million people. It doesn't fucking matter. Nothing's going to happen to them. Well, there is that kind of misconception about fascism in general that it's, you know, uh, a strong rule of law in the state. Yeah. Whereas, like, the fascist reality is is heavy, like... It's almost it's the lack of a rule of law. Uh, yeah, the where, shit the Democrats are doing right now—that's strong rule of law. Yeah, right. Where they do nothing because the law says they can't do anything. That's that's rule of law. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But yeah, like why I think inverted totalitarianism is an interesting explanatory model, where it's like essentially—I mean, it's kind of like we live under fascism, except you have civil rights. You can do freedom of speech. You can do freedom of assembly. It's just. Literally nothing you do, including voting, will ever change or challenge corporate power. Right. Well, at the same time, though, also, I mean, even under the Nazis, there was voting and, and freedom of speech is severely limited in terms of like corporate power because, you know, you see people get they'll lose their job for their Twitter posts or mm-hmm. what have you. So in, in a lot of ways, like we don't even have those or, you know, the I don't know, guys, I'm pretty sure hashtags are doing everything we need them to do. <laughs> hashtags are very structurally I mean, sound. <laughs> I think it's it's just interesting in like the mechanism of enforcement where it's like, you know, in Italy or Germany, the government will put you in jail or straight up murder you if you criticize the government. Yeah. Whereas here, it's just like, you know, the government's in, indifferent. But it was also paramilitary organizations early on. Right. Which like is the brown shirts or even the, the well, SS was kind of a government. I guess they were a government agency, but mm-hmm. like it, it, a lot of them kind of worked outside the law. Right. Well, and and I guess we'll kind of get to, like, my imagination of if and when fascism comes to America will be something like that, 
where like you'll, you'll never get rid of the First Amendment in this country. So you will always have a legal protection against government suppressing your free speech. But what's just going to happen is there's going to be a private militia yep. that's going to have access to the police Palantir exactly. database. And it just so happens that uh, if uh, you criticize the government too much, uh, some fucking militia guy is going to show up and put a bullet in your head. But uh, it wasn't the government. Mm -hmm. And uh, for some reason, this murder is never going to get solved. Yep. But aren't we there now? Like, is that, isn't that not the future? Isn't that, like, more today? Like, we do have... You know, those protections like first speech and so on and so forth. But at the same time, if you say the wrong thing, regardless of context, it can be be spinned against you in a way that being against first speech would be, you know, that's how that would be enacted. Yeah. Well, I, like, uh, for example, like on our mm -hmm. podcast, none of us can talk about who we work for. <laughs> <laughs> like... <laughs> Like it's, it's so hard for us to not shout out our really cool bosses at the Federal Bureau of Investigation, <laughs> giving us the freedom to podcast for a living. Listen, it's always been an MK Ultra plot, and Grubstakers has been in on it since day one. Look, they give us the best tabs of acid, and I'm tired of this inverted totalitarianism preventing me from thanking them. It's a pyramid scheme, but it's our pyramid scheme. <laughs> so one of the uh things that chris and i always talk about on on our show is that uh the economy is basically just the other half of the state so you have like the government and the economy mm -hmm. they form mm -hmm. two halves of the state and that corporations are essentially just private bureaus of the state that are set up according to rules established by the government mm -hmm. and so the inverted totalitarianism thing is kind of just like they're shifting power from the government side which is you know in theory accountable to uh popular will to uh corporations which are really just authoritarian and have a different source of legitimacy and can essentially you know just do whatever they want as long as they follow the uh the small set of rules that the government sets for them but but wait a minute. If I don't like my uh, Spectrum Internet, I can choose from all of zero other options. <laughs> right. And they're in competition because obviously, you know, uh, they there's, you know, maybe several in the same state technically, even though obviously they've also carved up which turf uh, each one will get to dominate. Yeah, they're all local monopolies. Yep, yep. There was a time where the uh, Con Edison was running ads in the subway as though they didn't have... A total monopoly on New York's <laughs> electricity. Was was that just them like like was that just like performative advertising? Like they're like, well, we, we just want to make it look like like we don't totally. Own yeah, it was. I don't yeah. know if they were like flexing or if they just like you know maybe they had some like wink nod deal like you know we'll throw some money at the subway. Right, right. All the advertisements were like, look at us, we're Con Edison. Don't let Con Tesla win. <laughs> <laughs> That is, as I understand it, the whole point of advertising is like since they can't like tell if an ad like works actually sells products. Yeah. yeah, the idea is just to like engender positive thoughts about the brand. So yeah. maybe that's what, just what they were doing. They're just trying to make people think that Con Edison is good. Yeah. Probably, yeah. So I mean, so I mean, you can get into we can get into like ads and marketing. I'll just tell you real quick that like actually uh, non compete on 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 RedTube. You know. Um, just ran something about Mark Red Tube. <laughs> <laughs> the Red Tube. Uh, uh, the, the other side of Left Tube. Um, he just ran something explaining kind of like the basics of especially like digital marketing these days. 
But yeah, a lot of a lot of um, the ads out there are just to get it in your head, um, and they just like hammer on you and hammer on you and hammer on you until eventually you remember that uh, you've always wanted to buy that product. Um, and and but they're it's even like how right. every time I watch an Ipmon movie, I become a Chinese nationalist for a few minutes. Yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, you look good in a, a queue. Um, <laughs> but yeah basically they're just running they're just running um this is actually where that sort of idea of like uh how we need startup capital you know you need to make money to make money um and why capitalists have an inherent advantage is that even with ads um you know yeah ads cost money but the um as american johnson in his video explained it he's like i'd be like extremely happy if i got five percent of five percent of the people who saw my ad to actually purchase my product. Um, right. right. And that's just how it works. And so that's probably why, I mean, you know, wh whether they were flexing uh, is obviously kind of a, you know, intuitive question because of their local monopoly, but it's also possible that they were trying to influence whoever was maybe passing through um, or, uh, or else somebody in the marketing department just fucked up. <laughs> but <laughs> Yeah, Spectrum runs ads like, uh, please don't contact your congressperson about us. <laughs> please just don't think about the fact that you have no choice for internet or cable. <laughs> it's, it's, it's capitalist realism, but in a more kind of um, direct and, and immediate way. Um, like, you have no choice, which is freedom. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of having no choice... Um, what ultimately happened with Mussolini's fascism is, um, well, it, it went it went the way that you might expect in terms of, you know, they, they went to war and um, all the public contracts and everything kind of flowed all this money and, and power into the uh, industrial hands. Uh, but of course, um, in addition to just kind of like your agricultural industrialists and you know, everything like that, um, a lot of the uh, war contractors did extremely well um, including Mussolini's original sponsor, Ansaldo, um, just from just from going to a war. So they're the only people that did well uh, on the Italian That's side. Literally, what I was going to say. I was like, I was like, well, you know, they did well. <laughs> like, they, they, they made a ton of money, a ton of killing from um, from a war they yes. lost okay. as, a, as a state. Um, <laughs> Again, no modern analogy. Right, not at all. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and actually. Um, this is just a quick plug in the middle of the episode for, uh, I don't know if any of you have been listening to the newish podcast, eat the rich. Um, but they, uh, yeah, I listen I to heard of that. One. They're good. Yeah. Yeah. I relate them. And they did, they just did, um, it was, it was very kind of, um, kind of like another grub stakers for this episode. So you guys should probably uh, show them a little, uh, you know, Italian uh, attention, but, um, I think they need an annoying soundboard. <laughs> yeah, you can't really be Grubstaker's hacks unless you're playing sounds no one wants to hear, <laughs> including the hosts on the right. show. <laughs> Why con Edison when you can con Grubstakers? Um. Yeah. So I like the podcast, but they edit out all the mouth sounds the hosts make. <laughs> and that's really, I need a human podcast, something that's really personal. Yes. This sounds like it's... Yeah, not enough butt talk. Yeah. Look, I... I can't really learn about the rich unless I hear somebody chewing. 
I am guilty well, now, of that. Now I'm totally regretting moving away from the mic when I was stuffing pistachios in my face <laughs> 10 minutes ago. <laughs> yeah, I need, a, I need a podcast that sounds like our former vice president at all times. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so, so they did basically one of their last episodes. They did a, a whole takedown of the Bush dynasty as another yet another you know Nazi legacy thing. Um, and I'm sure I can't remember. And I'm sorry. I, I'm sure you guys did one, too. Right. Um, I don't think we've actually done an ep on the Bush family. Okay. I mean, no. we talked about the Koch brothers. Oh, hell yeah. I, I know I, they both funded the Nazis. So basically that saves you guys one episode unless you really want to dig further into what those guys talked about, which is basically that the Bushes are American Nazi money as well. So that's cool. <gasps> yeah. Right. They, obviously, I mean, since then, it's more obvious they've totally fucked us up, but like their roots, uh, Nazi well, fortunately, that should be the last uh, rich person that gets in charge. That's uh, you know their ancestors got money from the Nazis, so. huh. right? Um, that's like, all. That's that. <laughs> <laughs> I I made that point on Twitter about like the Koch brothers are just rich because their dad made an oil refinery for the Nazis, mm-hmm. you know, and they inherited that money. And you know, like a couple like libertarian types mm-hmm. uh, accounts were being sarcastic with me, like, "Yep, that was their only profitable investment ever. <laughs> the most profitable oil refinery, just the one they set up from the Nazis." <laughs> and it's like, uh, "Yeah, dipshit. Uh, they used the money from the Nazi one their dad did to buy another oil yeah. refinery in the United yeah. States, and then they just uh, came down the birth canal and collected the checks from that." Yep. Hey, they what, won that race. What are you going to do? Yeah. So what a what a wonderful counter argument. <laughs> right. That's just the way accumulated capital works. Yeah, they were actually productive uh, other than the oil refinery for the Nazis, such as the oil refineries elsewhere, which, you know, as we all know, are when you work for money. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, you want to talk about bootstrapping. If you've been bootstrapped by the Nazis, you really don't have an argument. Uh, <laughs> So, so basically, final final note on the um, Italian fascists. Uh, eventually, they totally fucked up, um, and Germany moved in and was like, "All right, buddy, uh, we're gonna just run this show from now on." So, historically, you know what happened is Mussolini lost power through a coup, and then Germany, uh, Nazi Germany, reinstalled him. But at that point, um, the uh, sort of northern Italy that they were in control of, which they put Mussolini back in nominal control of was just this like totally just puppet state or kind of administrative region. Um, so even though Mussolini was kind of uh, a public figurehead, that was basically all he was. And the Nazis just used it at that point as um, kind of a vassal territory. Uh, and uh, the Italian resistance um, in the South, especially was just like, you know, doing much, much better than, than they'd been able to before. So this brings us uh, to, you know, our, our, our top boy, um, Sean, uh, with the, the Italy's new controlling roommate, and how did they get started, and what were they about? The guy whose opinions well, we agree with. Yeah. yeah. Good. <laughs> well, it's important to always say that. Uh, well, and I did want to mention just two other things mm-hmm. that I just happen to know about um, Italy towards the end is, uh, so yeah, like you were saying, um, the Allies invaded southern Italy, right. and then the Ger- uh, the Germans... Uh, put Mussolini as the nominal head of state Mm. in in northern Italy. Mm. But actually, during this time, Mussolini writes the second part of his memoirs. And I haven't read it, but it is a pretty interesting historical document because by all accounts, like, he's just completely rueful. And people say he wrote this as if he was already dead. Shit. So he, like... 
He writes like the history of his life, like uh, you What's know. It called if I did it. Too. <laughs> 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 um. But yeah, and oh, and then the other thing, um, I'm reading this great book called Savage Continent, and it's about what happened in Europe after World War II. Mm. And an interesting thing is, you know, because the fascists were so, they were in power like so much, uh, uh, significantly longer than the Nazis, they were much more able to infiltrate the Italian state at all levels. Yeah. So what happens after the war is, you know, the Italians are trying to have like trials mm. of various fascist criminals. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, the judges are all fascists, right. you know, or like we're within, within the uh, Italian state. Mm-hmm. So, so that's Good thing actually, things aren't like that anymore. Yeah, <laughs> but that's actually why Italy had some of the most, uh, let's say, violent partisan um, uh, retributions mm-hmm. after mm-hmm. liberation and after the end of the war yep. is because you know various communists and uh, you know not even just communists, other anyone who wasn't a fascist basically. Uh, in um, uh, armed resistance to the fascist state, we're like, okay, so we turn these people over for justice, and then the judge cleared right. them. So we're just going to just going to do it, yeah. So, do the thing. So there were like, and that's why there were so many violent uh, reprisals uh-huh. after uh, the end of the war in Italy. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And that's actually, I just want to also, jeez, I've been doing a lot of good podcasts lately. Um, inter- <laughs> listening, I mean. Um, on the note, of, yeah, right, me, me too. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, on the note of, um, I've, which ones were you on, Sean? Yeah, I was. I was. I've been it wasn't like, ours. Yeah, I've been recording two podcasts a week, and I've been listening to some really good ones. Yes, yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so another one that I just signed up for, which is really interesting, that I recommend to you guys and everybody else who's interested in any of this, and also in um, like uh, kind of like leftist or leftish uh, um, analysis of like conflicts, um, historical and, and current. Um, there's a podcast called the war nerd, which I, I basically linked up with uh, via one of the, one of my mofos on Twitter who recommended uh, the episodes that they did on Italy's years of lead, which are basically about the decades after the war in which yes, those partisans, and the sort of fascists and post-fascists who were swimming around and part of the bureaucracy, et cetera, were basically struggling to um, make something of their kind of post-war state, um, and you know, ended up ended up just like blowing each other away for decades, um, and like insane conspiratorial shit going on, and like anyway, and they have an actual Italian historian of sorts um, who gives the dirt on like the very barest summary of what happened and it is absolutely mind-boggling so if you're into this kind of stuff about like modern politics and conflict and italy's political history etc and how it might apply to us today and future years of lead on the war nerd look it up Mm -hmm. yeah do you know how much you have to fuck up as a country to elect (laughs) silvio berlusconi three times (laughs) in a row (laughs) just do that guy please I think one thing we're forgetting, though, is if they took that lead out, Sylvester Stallone wouldn't have that voice. You know, I think that's <laughs> pretty obvious. Yeah. You say you're looking for a lead actor? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they did Can a Can you imagine a if rem- Sylvester Stallone was like, cut me! <laughs> <laughs> I think they also did a Years of Lead in uh, Michigan. <laughs> Flint. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. <laughs> Um, All right, so Germany. So Germany, yeah, let's hear about this. Well, so 
I read this book, uh, Wages of Destruction by Adam Tuze. Uh, I've talked about it on the on our podcast, mm-hmm. Grubstakers, a bit. Um, and, you know, like, if you're interested in the economy of Nazi Germany, I mean, it's a great resource. It's long, but, uh, you know, I just find that stuff very interesting. Mm-hmm. And um, something I've talked about is, uh, you know, Hitler is, of course, appointed chancellor January 1933. Mm-hmm. But then there is one last, like, mostly free election in Germany under the Nazis in March 33. Mm -hmm. So Hitler, um, before this election, calls a meeting of uh, the leaders of major German industry. I believe Deutsche Bank was there, a rep from, um, I believe, the precursor to IG Farben, uh, Krupp Steel, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. These, These reps of major German industries go to meet with the new chancellor of Germany, and they're expecting to hear about his plan for this or that or whatever. And what he tells them very directly is, we're going to have an election. Uh, what he tells them is, we're going to have an election, but if if we win, then we will have a legal mechanism to suppress the communists and the social democrats. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't matter if we don't win. Yeah. This is going to happen anyways. Right. So you need to give us money to fund our upcoming election campaign. And this is in your interest because we are the power now. So you want to play nice with us and we're going to protect your private property and all this. And then he just leaves the meeting. And I think uh, Herman Goering was there as well to work out the details. Well, part of that but, was also they would have brown shirts at the polling stations you right. know, kind of oh, yeah. to intimidate voters and make it clear that like maybe if you vote for the wrong person, you might get beaten, beaten yeah. up later. Yeah, no, the modern historical analogy is when Obama put the Black Panthers at the polling stations (laughs) (laughs) to prevent Mitt Romney from riding that 90% tidal wave he should have gotten. (laughs) But yeah, so of course, you know, and then uh, the Nazis lose seats in March, but then the Reichstag fire Mm -hmm. and the Enabling Act and um, and they uh, they uh, none of the communist elected people, the KP. PD are allowed to show up for the Enabling Act vote. The Social Democrats vote against it, but they're yeah, outvoted. So an important, important piece of context for like the rise of power of the Nazis mm-hmm. was that <clears throat> at the time, like in Germany, um, first after the humiliation of the loss of the war, then after the uh, hyperinflation, and then um, ultimately uh, the lead up to the Great Depression, there was a lot of, uh, or the very beginning of the Great Depression, there was a lot of um communist activity in germany uh some of it was linked to the soviet union but a lot of it was just people were communists and um yeah (laughs) and and so there was a good deal of street fighting um Mm. and you know the business interests they saw that the brown shirts um the paramilitary uh, wing of the Nazis were the ones fighting the communists. And then at the same time, the Nazis would start street fights with communists and then say that the communists were causing all the violence in the streets. Um, but yeah. the way that they framed it was like, we're the only bulwark against the rise of, of communism in Germany. Uh-huh. And um, that basically was how they lured. Well, I mean, more or less how they lured business interests behind them right. um, was to say like, we'll stop them. Right. Yeah. Hitler, Hitler gives this really fascinating interview to the, I believe it was the Guardian. Um, I'll I'll look it up in a second here, but um, but regardless, you know what what happens when they come in is they inherit some spending programs from Social Democrats, but they actually go on like they go on a military Keynesian deficit spending spree. Mm-hmm. It's 
it's kind of interesting where they have like these uh they have war reparation um obligations but haljamar shout or i don't even know how to pronounce that he's uh put he essentially becomes dictator of the economy mm-hmm. like he was a previous uh finance minister in weimar mm-hmm. um but hitler makes him head of the reichsbank and the finance minister and he comes up with this scheme called mifo bonds mm-hmm. which is essentially essentially just printing money but not Sounds like call- something from fucking rick and morty or something <laughs> <laughs> I turned myself into a Stuka dive bomber, Morty. <laughs> Don't you get it? <laughs> I'm Stuka dive bomber Rick. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, MIFO bonds uh, are just like the government will give you a piece of paper that says, hey, we'll give you this can be traded for goods and services with the government or, you know, you can... Uh, redeem this for payment at a later date Mm -hmm. they essentially just print money to buy war materials and uh with that you know after they have the power from the enabling act they uh they do a bit of privatization where they privatize some banks that had previously been um uh, nationalized and some other industries uh but they essentially say to the industrialists you can keep your shit as long as you give us preferential access for military buildup mm-hmm. and um and you know like i think uh they put like a five percent max profits I, I believe that was the figure they come up with for um wartime industries but it is like we were saying you know really kind of hands off the industrialists can make money as long as the economy is serving the war effort right like i think there's there's only like uh there's very few cases of nationalization, but there is one case where they like nationalize some sort of uh, aircraft maker uh, to retool it for making planes of war. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're mostly either privatizing or encouraging the development of cartels, such as IG Farben, mm-hmm. uh, because that's the the best way to deal with the the corporate estate. Right. My favorite thing about learning all this stuff is uh, that all all of the companies that are uh, supporting fascism are still around today. Uh, yes. Right, right, right. <laughs> well, really like glad they, we dealt with them. <laughs> yeah, IG Farben became Bayer, which is uh, yeah, love it. And then of course the the um, VW iconic VW Bug, the original version was hand drawn by Hitler. <laughs> he designed the car. Oh my what? god! I didn't that, know that became the VW <laughs> Bug. Sucks. Yeah. Her be fully loaded. It's completely different in my mind now. Herbie is a car is a people's car. <laughs> it is a car that loves. He wants an ethno state for cars. <laughs> yeah. So so Hitler. I, I mentioned this earlier. He gives an interview to the Guardian in 1923, and he. Um, he says, Social, quote, socialism is an ancient Aryan Germanic institution. Our German ancestors held certain lands in common. They cultivated the idea of a common wheel. Marxism has no right to disguise itself as socialism. Socialism, unlike Marxism, does not repudiate private property. Uh, unlike <laughs> okay. Marxism, it involves no, no negation of personality. And unlike Marxism, it is patriotic. And so, you know, that's that's something you kind of run into. Like, if you um, uh, read Mein Kampf, another obsession, of, of, a big part of that, besides, of course, the anti-Semitism, is uh, direct attacks on socialism or communism, mm-hmm. or he'll talk about, 
his experience speaking to like workers when he was a laborer and how he views them as like well, he he worked some day jobs. He didn't work that much, but yeah, no, he, he was talks a, about he was a bum actually. Um, yeah, because he yeah. he went straight to he tried to get into art school and then he failed out of that and then he was like painting postcards on the streets of yeah. Vienna for a while. Yeah. I guess mm-hmm. that must have been when he was a laborer. He, he probably was probably like doing some there. odd painting, house painting, or whatever the case may yeah. be. Yeah, yeah. Um, he he was a gig worker basically. So I actually listened to an, an interesting audio book um, of a classic book called the rise and fall of the third reich um by a journalist of sorts as i recall who was living in germany throughout that era and like actually personally encountered many of the like you know heads of state like uh goebbels and shit and he like absolutely hated their guts um and found them to be disgusting and and like wrote this like you know thousand page book about <laughs> all their all their pretenses and all the shit that he dug up on them after the war and after all he got he got all these classified documents and, um, you know, he talked about how, you know, he, he kind of explained like Hitler's growing up and everything like that. Um, and how he became brainwashed by like an old, like Prussian nationalist type or like Austrian nationalist type, sorry. Um, early on in like this sort of just podunk school that he was at and, um, ended up, uh, yeah, he wanted to be an artist. And then, and then they said, actually, like, you're really not good. Uh, but you could maybe be like a kind of like a CAD drawer. You know, you could like draw lines for an architect or something. You know, you're good with that. Um, they were like, he was kind of more just, as you might kind of expect from his personality, like he was really good at like uh, getting things in line and <laughs> um, and then, but like not very good at other things. Like his visions were very, um, his like artistic vision was very kind of flat and, and you know, not that inspiring. Um, but anyway, so right, he could draw like buildings, but then like I think someone posted online just this really shitty drawing yeah. of a woman he did, yeah, yeah. <laughs> where her face was all distorted, um, which probably explains yeah. why you know he had to you know fuck some you know, underage cousin or whatever the fuck it was. Um, but his yeah, his basic thing, and like I'm kind of telling him myself a little bit here, just as a um, fucking temp worker. But he was basically a gig guy, like he was just a gig economy kind of guy who like was apparently just but he was like in other words if he were alive today he would be an ubermensch <laughs> yes <laughs> yes uh, uh. yeah i'm canceling myself for giving hitler five stars out of politeness <laughs> <laughs> right. right clean car <laughs> very yeah. clean car uh, not very good conversation yeah but you know so i guess my point was with the guardian interview he Mm -hmm. talks about you know when i take charge of germany i shall end tribute abroad and bolshevism at home Mm -hmm. and but at the same time he calls himself a socialism a socialist excuse me and a lot of mein kampf is devoted to attacks on socialism (laughs) and like saying you know the german workers are like so great you know so noble so hardworking, but they have had their minds poisoned by this bolshevism or you know communism that that's essentially internationalist that doesn't recognize the nation state that doesn't recognize the the german race mm-hmm. and so that that's again where you get this popular mass appeal because when you have a crisis in capitalism like the great depression was and like we are sort of having now today with you know neoliberalism at least ideologically on the retreat you have very few people like there's no more libertarians there's a like a 15 people online who call themselves neoliberal proudly <laughs> you know 
So you have to have some sort of popular mass base mm -hmm. for capitalism. Mm -hmm. So you have to rebrand that. So that's why Hitler, uh, again, spends so much of Mein Kampf attacking socialism, but saying we're the real socialists, right. even though we're going to protect private property. Right. You know? And in his mind, he, uh, he associated, you know, the international element of uh, Bolshevism and Marxism um, with, let's say, the ethnic background of Marx. Um, right. Yeah. So, so would you say they did a pretty good job then of, of essentially doing what the, you know, allegedly uh, what fascists do, which is protect and bolster capital interests uh, in Germany? Like, yeah, I mean, like until you hit until they're losing World War Two, <laughs> right, right, right. and then uh, and then and then some of the capitalists start to regret their devil's Owned. bargain. Thanks, everyone, for listening. That was the end of part one. Come back next week for part two.